A couple weeks ago, I felt compelled to start a conversation with you about the church, not North Place Church specifically, but the church globally, the family of God eternally throughout time and space, of which North Place Church is a significant but a very small part. I don't think many people that go to church actually understand the nature, purpose, and mission of the church as it's revealed in scripture. And I don't think many people that go to church actually understand the depth of God's love for his church. In the first sermon in this series, I pointed you to John 17, which are some of the last recorded words of Jesus before his crucifixion. And it's a private prayer where he is pouring his heart out to the Father. And in that prayer, he is revealing his heart, his all-consuming love for the church. And if Jesus feels that way about the church, and I call myself a follower of Christ, then that means I'm going to love what he loves, pursue what he pursues, advance what he advances, and there's nothing he pursues more, loves more, advances more than his church, his people. Which is why in week one, I reminded you about the beauty of the church. Too often, instead of seeing the church through the eyes of Christ, we view the church through our own petty self-interest. And that's when our hearts start to grow cold and apathetic and disgruntled toward the church. Too often, we define the church by the failures of institutions or the corruption of high-profile leaders. And our culture and the spiritual enemy use those things to rob us of love and affection for something that Jesus sacrificed his life to build. And don't get me wrong, I think we love some of her people, we love some of her pastors, we love some of her ministries, we love some of the church's activities, but somewhere along the way, we lost our love for her. We stopped loving the church the way Jesus loved the church. And if Jesus sees the church as a priceless treasure, then so should I. And I ought to belong to it, pray for it, and sacrifice the resources of my life to advance it because he did. The purpose of this whole series is to help us rediscover and reawaken our love for the church, to help us love what Jesus loves the way Jesus loves it. And when I say reawaken your affections for the church, I'm not talking about having love for a specific ministry, methodology, structure, denomination, a certain building, or a program, but loving the church for who the church is and why she exists. And to help us do that today, I want us to think about the worship of the church. There's something incredibly unique and powerful, even holy and supernatural about the collective worship of God's people when we gather like we have today. In week one, I pointed you to the writings of the apostle Peter when he talked about the church and used that to build a definition for the church. Today, I want to look to the writings of the apostle Paul and look at how he defines the church and her worship in Ephesians chapter two. In the early part of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is describing the life of a believer, our past life before Christ, and the grace of God that interrupted our lives and brought us into the family of God. He saved us and made us a part of his family. And I want you to listen to how the Message Bible paraphrases the first six verses of chapter 2, Ephesians 2. It wasn't long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, 
immense in mercy and incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all of this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. At the end of chapter two, Paul gets very specific in defining this redeemed family of sinners that Jesus has saved. He defines the church. And he says this in verse 19. So then, because of what Jesus has done in your life, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Our focus today is on verse 22, but I don't want you to miss the depth in the previous verses because in these four verses, Paul gives four key descriptions of the church. Basically, this is what he says. The church is the gathering of fellow citizens and family, one, who are founded on the book, the Bible, two, fitly framed together in unity, three, and filled with the glorious presence of God, four. Fellow citizens founded, framed, and filled. Now look at that first one. What does Paul mean when he says the church is comprised of fellow citizens with the saints? Listen to verse 19 again. So then, because of the grace of God in your life, the work of Jesus Christ, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Before we put our faith in Jesus and made him the Lord of our life, our sin made us exiles to the family of God. We were outsiders, we were foreigners, strangers, and aliens to God's kingdom and all of the blessings that come with it. But when we surrendered our lives to Christ, we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The exiles were now welcomed home. We were no longer strangers or foreigners. We became family with the household of faith. In Christ, we have become fellow citizens of a heavenly city and a heavenly kingdom. And because of that, I can now sing a song that the angels cannot even sing, the song of the redeemed. Michael, Gabriel, all the angels, they don't know what it is to how their feet pulled out of the miry clay and set up on the rock to stay. They don't know what it is to be lost and then found. They don't understand the amazing grace of God. And one day, all of this fellow citizens and family that have been redeemed are going to join heaven's choir, and the angels are going to have to stop and listen as we sing our testimony of redemption in the choir of the redeemed. Listen to how the Message Bible paraphrases verse 19. You are no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You are no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here. All by the grace and mercy of God. So God has made a family out of strangers and exiles, and he's called those people his family. It's the church, fellow citizens of the same kingdom, Next, Paul says the church is comprised of those who are founded on the apostles and prophets. This is Paul's way of referring to scripture. The teaching of the prophets, the writing of the prophets are a reference to the Old Testament. The teaching and writings of the apostles, they are a reference to the New Testament. So the church is the gathering of people whose lives are governed by the principles of God's kingdom that are laid out in his written word. Our lives are not governed by convenience or by culture or by majority vote. 
We don't live by the wishy-washy modern mantra, know your truth. Because truth is not relative from person to person. Truth is a concrete, absolute reality determined by God himself, revealed in his word. It is true for everybody all the time, everywhere at the same time. It doesn't change, it doesn't adapt, it cannot be improved upon, overruled, or amended by a vote. The church is the gathering of people who sing the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. The church is a family built on the foundation of the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, the word. And the next Paul says, this family is fitly framed together in unity. All through the passage, Paul is using this metaphor of a carpenter building a house to describe how Jesus is building his church. He refers to the house in verse 19, the household of faith. He refers to the foundation in verse 20, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then in verse 21, he says this, in whom the whole structure being joined together, the house, then the foundation, and the whole structure is being joined and framed together. He's pointing to how all of these different pieces, very different pieces, fit together to form something holy, powerful, and beautiful. He's pointing to the unity of all of these varied pieces. There is nothing more diverse than the Lord's church. It's global, it's eternal, it's cross-cultural, it's being built from every people, tribe, nation, and language. And the only thing that we have in common with each other is that we have bowed our knee to the same king. We are united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's what makes the worship of the church so beautiful. You have this gathering of all of these different people, different ethnicities, from different economies, from different education levels, from different nations and cultures and perspectives who are willing to lay those differences aside for the holy and sacred gathering around the one thing we have in common, the most important thing in the world, our unified adoration and love of Jesus. The goal is not uniformity. The goal is unity. The church is not a gathering where everyone is supposed to be the same. We're not trying to all be alike. We are a very different collection of people being built together, being fitly framed together by the Holy Spirit around our shared commitment and commonality of total love and surrender to Jesus. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. And he has made us one in him. We are his church. So the church is the gathering of fellow citizens and family who are founded on the book, fitly framed, joined together in unity, and filled with the glorious presence of God. Look at verse 22 again. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place. Now lean into that, dwelling place. You are a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Paul, in verse 22, is revealing the whole purpose for the existence of the church. He's telling us why Jesus gave his life for the church. He's telling us why God is so committed to building this family of faith called the church. We are being built together as a dwelling place for the presence of God on earth. I love the way the King James phrases verse 22, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the spirit. Instead of saying dwelling place, 
The King James translators chose the English word habitation, and I love it because it's more visual and descriptive for what's actually going on when God dwells with his people. The word habitation means the state or process of living in a particular place. Synonyms, occupancy, residence, living in, dwelling, inhabit. So for something to take up habitation or to inhabit a certain place, the habitat or the environment has to be conducive for life. Plants, animals, even human beings can only thrive or live in or inhabit certain habitats. So here's the question. What is the habitat for the dwelling of God's presence? Where has God chosen to make his habitation? Paul answers that here in Ephesians 2, saying that God has chosen to dwell in the collective gathering and worship of his people. He has chosen the worship of the church as his home, as his habitat. That is where he makes his habitation. Now, I want to point you to John's gospel for a minute. This may seem like a detour. It's not. I want you to connect the theological dots here. We normally read this passage in John 1, 14 at Christmas time, but I want you to see this. The word is a reference to Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There's that word again, dwelling. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace of truth. He made his dwelling. That phrase in the Greek literally translates tabernacled among us. And John chose those words on purpose because he wanted, when you thought of Jesus coming to dwell with us, he wanted you to think about the presence of God coming into the Old Testament tabernacle. The driving passion for God creating the human race was to be with us. He wanted to dwell with us. He wanted to have somebody to share his love with. And all through the Bible, he searched for ways to dwell with the human race. The Bible says that he came down in the cool of the evening and he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And when sin banished us from the perfection of the garden, he told his wandering people to build a tabernacle and gave them specific instructions to create a place inside that tabernacle where his glory could come down and dwell with this sinful people. At the completion of the permanent temple, Solomon's temple, God was so pleased that the glory of God filled that temple and his presence was so heavy, the Bible says the priests could not even stand up to perform their duties under the weight of God's glorious presence. From the garden to the tabernacle to the temple to the incarnation when Jesus came as a baby in a manger, the story of the Bible is the story of God passionately pursuing ways to be with his people, to dwell with us. And then Paul comes along in Ephesians 2 and tells us that when the people of God come together in worship, that our collective worship becomes the dwelling place. We become like Eden. We become like the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, like the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. We become like that manger. Our worship as a gathered people becomes the habitat for God's glory. Ephesians 2.22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. The same glory that filled the manger and the same glory that filled that Old Testament tabernacle descend when we come together and exalt his name in unity and lift him up. I want you to pause for a moment. I want you to think deeply about this. 
I need you to see what this reveals about the potential of our gathered worship. I don't think we get it. I don't think we fully understand the heart of God for the collective worship of the church. The potential in power in moments like these when we come together to worship and exalt his name are supernatural. When we come together each weekend to fellowship, to sing, to lift our hands, to exalt the name of Jesus, to learn from his word, this environment is the habitat that God had said, this is gonna be my dwelling on the earth. And if we understood that, it would be a game changer for us. It would change everything about the way we approach weekend services, our weekend worship experiences at church. It would change first our level of expectation. If I really believe what the Bible says about corporate worship, I would be more like David when David said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Why was David so excited to get to church? Because he knew there was something supernatural about corporate worship that cannot be replicated in any other way in any other place. In God's presence, there's the supernatural power for sickness to be healed, for addiction to be broken, for relationships to be restored, for sin to be forgiven, for lives to be changed. And if I really believe what the Bible said about corporate worship, I would run into this place every weekend with my heart ready to meet with God, full of expectation about what his people, what God might do when his people worship him. If you really believe what the Bible says about the church's worship, it would change your level of preparation. We wouldn't walk in here on Sundays lackadaisically as if we were strolling into some performance or concert waiting to be entertained. We would walk into this environment with our hearts right, with our hearts ready to receive what God has promised to do when we come together. This church, our gathered worship is God's habitat. It's where he lives. It's, it's where he takes up residence. Our worship time is not a song service. And the people that lead us here are not song leaders. It's not a 20 minute filler or buffer to buy time for late arrivers to stroll in for the preaching. If you don't value corporate worship, I would tell you that you don't understand your Bible and you don't fully grasp the heart of God. Listen to the psalmist as he worships. He's saying this to God, yet you are holy. Psalm 22, three, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. The praise of his people is not what makes him holy. He's already holy. It's the corporate praise of his people that attracts his holiness and draws him near and close to us. Our praise becomes his throne, his power, his dominion lives and flourishes in our worship. Our collective worship becomes the throne room. It becomes the holy of holies. He inhabits, the Bible says, the praise of his people. You could say our collective praise as his church becomes the seat of his glory. Now key in on that phrase, the seat of his glory, and think about that for a moment while you look at this image. This is an image we're gonna put up. It's an image of the Ark of the Covenant. In the Old Testament, it was synonymous with the presence of God. Everywhere the Ark went, the presence of God went. Originally, God's people didn't have a king. Their government was not a democracy, it was not a kingship. It was a theocracy and God was their king. He governed them. And this ark was his throne. Now notice the top of the ark, there are two angels or cherubim. They're facing each other and that's the important thing here. The space in between those two angels that are facing each other, that space in between is known as the mercy seat. 
That's where the blood was sprinkled for the sacrifice on the day of atonement, all of that. That space in between the cherubim, that was the throne of God's presence. That was the seat of his glory. Remember what the psalmist said, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. His, his throne was seated in the middle of their praise. Pay close attention to the angels on top and ask the question, why are they facing each other? Because that's the place that God has chosen to dwell. He dwells in between and among the collective conversation of his people as they glorify his name. He dwells in and in between the worship of his people. What did Jesus say? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Those angels on the top of the Ark of the Covenant signify the place where God dwelt in the past, but they also symbolize the place he has chosen to always dwell in between and among the praises of his people. You remember Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. His train, his, the train of his robe fills the temple. Isaiah describes the scene as he gets this visual of, of heaven and he, he sees this multitude of angels and they're circling the throne of God. I want you to pay close attention to what they're doing. Isaiah 6 verse 3, they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy. They're calling out to each other, okay? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. They're calling out to each other. That must be what the angels on the mercy seat on top of the ark are doing. One, of that, one on one side is saying, holy, holy, holy. The one on the other side is saying, worthy, worthy, worthy. And it's in between that praise, that conversation of glorifying his name that God dwells. He is enthroned there. He inhabits the place between and among the collective praise of his people. You see the same thing in the book of Revelation. As John gets a glimpse into heaven, he sees the throne room of God, the angels are worshiping, and here's what John writes. Day after day, night after night, they keep on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is to come. And do you realize the same is true today at every North Place campus, at any church today, that is willing to come together as a family and exalt the name of Jesus. If some of us in this room today with sincere and surrendered hearts would declare in this moment of worship we're about to go into, if you would declare holy, 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 and on the other side of the room, the rest of, another half of us with sincere and surrendered hearts would, would declare worthy, worthy, worthy. It is in that praise that God would come and dwell. He's promised to come. It is in that the gathered worship of the church that he has chosen to make his habitat. And the scripture says that he's been seeking those dwelling places. He's running after us from the beginning, chasing us, pursuing us, seeking to be with us. And he's doing that right now. Not every building that has a steeple and calls itself a church is the dwelling place of God's presence because they're not in there worshiping. They're going through the routines. They become a civic religious club that meets on Sundays and goes through the motions, but they're not doing what Isaiah 6 says is happening around the throne room of God. But when we come together and join their song, worthy, worthy, holy, holy, and together we exalt the one thing we have in common, the glory of God comes. 
Remember what Jesus said in the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. But the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship. He's hunting for people and places where his glory can dwell. He wants to be with us. Because God knows when mortal man encounters his glorious presence, it changes everything. It is impossible for that man to stay the same when he walks into the presence of a glorious God. So here's the question. Will you prepare your heart and your life to be the place where he dwells? Will the people of this church value the moments of our gathered worship enough to offer him our whole hearts and create an environment for his presence to dwell. He's looking, he's searching. If we'll let our lives in church, he'll let it be the place. So we're gonna go back into worship today. Let me just say this. I wanna stir your faith. I think we undervalue moments like this. I don't think we fully see the potential in what can happen in moments like this. So if you're sick, if you need a miracle, you need something in your family, don't focus on that right now. I want you to be aware, we don't have somebody here with gift of healing and very popular and bring you in, but the king is in the room today. And he's all we need. If, he, if the train of his robe fills the temple and you stop focusing on what's wrong with your life and you start focusing on what's right with your God in worship, things change in the collective conversation of his people. So all over our campuses, here in Saxe, Wiley, Garland, Hughes, stand with me please, all over this place. And we're gonna take a page right out of Isaiah six. We're gonna sing a song right out of Isaiah six. It's familiar to most of us, but it comes right from Isaiah six. And we're gonna join the saints and angels song. We're not facing each other. That's not the postures. The reality is you're worshiping, you're worshiping, you're worshiping, and God comes to live holy, holy, worthy, worthy, in and among the praises of his people. Exalt his name and don't underestimate what he might do in you in this moment. Come on, bless him.